Hello everyone, it's been a while since recording an episode of the podcast, I think it's been over a year since the last episode. Today was a bit of a spontaneous and uh, and impromptu episode with my friend Callum Jenkins. He popped round to get some advice, some cycling advice for this upcoming expedition adventure he's going to be carrying out at some point next year. And so I decided why not liven the mics up and record this as an episode of the Shack Session. So uh, without further ado, I'll let him explain what he's doing. I call you Shaq. Government officials. Bro, bro, go play. Bro, bro, bro. I just want to cheer. Are you good, bro? The Shaq Sessions podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Lewis. Uh, this is the Shaq Sessions podcast. I haven't recorded any in quite a while because, quite simply, I've been too busy. But with me today, I have a friend of mine, Callum Jenkins, who's going on quite a remarkable adventure next year. Um, well, there's no much more need for an intro. Do you want to let us know what you're doing? Yeah, so um, next year, on July the 1st, I'm going to set out to uh, cycle across the second largest continent in the world, Africa. I'm going to fly out to... Alexandra, Egypt, and cycle all uh, across generally more the uh, the east coast of the country um, due to just being the easiest route for like political reasons and bureaucracy and danger, obviously, and then finish in Cape Town in South Africa. But I am going to go to Lagulas, which is the southernmost point of South Africa before... I then go to Cape Town to to the finish line. Um, it was conceived because I wanted to break through in the the outdoor industry. It's quite difficult these days with people like Bear Grylls and Steve Backshaw and you know Aldo Kane and Ed Stafford as well. He's still doing you know huge things and all of these people who are idolised. They um, I, I I couldn't figure out what they were doing to get to these positions like in the first place you know and i wanted to to break through and, and do something to get noticed really so has this not been done before it's been done by a handful of people the only two people i know and forget i'm not trying to discredit anyone who has done it and you know made a big song and dance about it but the only two people that i do know who has done it is uh, a scottish guy called mark beaumont who did it for a speed record um Forgive me, I can't remember how long he did. He did it in something ludicrous, like seventy days or something ridiculous. But that, like, that was uh, man. That wasn't that. That had a support vehicle. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Depending on who you ask, obviously. Like, I, I don't really know if if it would be unsupported or supported. I'm I'm not really sure, but um, yeah, he, he absolutely like smashed the speed record. But the thing is, the the only reason that I mentioned that I don't know who else did it is because I assume that he was beating somebody else's record. Right. Um, but he, he absolutely smashed it and, and did really well. He was racking up like 300 something kilometers every single day. Right. Um, okay. But he had, cause am I right? Cause I know he's done around the world as well. Yes. Hasn't he? Before that, before that, because mm. wasn't it, he like he had a camper van with him. So he was able to, yeah, he knew he had a place to sleep every night because you can't do a speed record wild camping every night yeah i think his itinerary was watertight yeah you know. but you're doing yours unmanned yeah mine's gonna be a little bit more raw adventure style like uh al humphreys who's the person i came across first before mark beaumont um al humphreys i listened to his audiobook completely spontaneously when i was on the fringes of deciding which route i was going to take i've always been a huge fan of like man-powered expeditions running walking swimming cycling rowing whatever you, it wants to be like man-powered expeditions and when i was at my deciding point uh, at which route i was going to go down to do something big um al humphreys was tipped the scales with with his book cycling around the world did it on about seven thousand pounds of student loans and just had the most monumental story to tell at the end of it. it was... Is that the guy with the ginger beard? The yeah, ginger beard? yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's Yorkshire a, is bloke. It, yeah, isn't he like a, a long distance runner as well? Is I don't that... know. I don't know that much about him personally, but his book was right. amazing. And he's, you know, not a cliche adventurer. He doesn't ooze sex appeal, and he's not 
you know, shredded and beautiful. And he, he's just very nerdy and, and almost very disarming when you look at him. Right. He's a, a really humble bloke and a bit nerdy and just yeah. all around great. And his book was touching, you know, it's made me believe that anybody can go and do this. I don't have to wallow in worries about like robbery and, and all of these kind of things that you get scared of when you, you go away and do something, you know, in a foreign country. Yeah, because immediately when you think kind of coming through Africa and you're saying like about political problems and things yeah. like that, surely that was kind of one of your primary concerns was like, how are you going to you know, navigate your way through? Yeah, I'm only human and like everybody else, I, I, I feel the fear and the terror and um, I think uh, a huge part of that is just drummed up from potentially self-doubt. Mm. Um what do I fear more? Do I fear robbery or do I fear not completing the cycle? You know, it's yeah. um, the real, I think the two real fears that are definitely quite tangible are, are road accidents and injury. Yeah. Because those are the only two which will physically prevent me. Sorry, I'm just going to take my jacket off. Those are the only two that will physically prevent me from completing the cycle. Whereas if I was robbed or beaten up it's a bit of a knock to uh to my confidence and my self-esteem but i very much doubt that that would stop me from yeah. carrying on i guess like anxiety in its very nature that the thought is more than likely going to be far worse than in reality yeah um especially that's been done before at least yeah even though it was yeah like you're saying it depends on who you're talking to it's, it's it was supported or not the fact it's been done before yeah it's kind of paved the way even though it's likely trodden, it's, it's kind of helps a little bit. But, yeah, you're doing it your way, where it's <clears throat> as little support as possible. Because I read in your post, it was, you'll be staying in accommodation now and again, like if it so suits, but otherwise it's going to be, yeah, kind of as, as wild as possible. But in that sense, it's not your first rodeo, is it? Because kind of what do you normally do as your day job? Well, I work for a company right now called Gap Force, which is an expedition company aimed at people between about 18 and 25. Once you get to about 24, they, they start petering out because it is very specifically aimed at GAP students. Um, and we go all around the world um, and we make sure that people can go and enjoy the outdoors, but they know that they are always safe. Um, it's quite hard for young people to go and travel the world because of said dangers. Um, so we basically provide that insulated expedition, which makes sure that you're always on the fringes of, of danger, but there is always going to be many a safety net and fail safe in place if, if anything goes wrong. And it's normally quite female heavy um, in the groups because sadly we just live in a world where it is probably way more dangerous to travel as a young uh, female. You know? So you'd think that because the men would be doing it on their own, so the women doing um, it because then they got the security of potentially, being chaperoned. Yeah. I, I, like me personally, I did not have the guts to go traveling when I was 18. Yeah, no I way. I didn't go traveling on my own until I was about 23 years old. And by traveling, to... you mean expedition kind of adventure style stuff? Or yeah, just yeah. I, I mean, on a plane? I went um, when I was quite young. I, I did go and live in Costa Rica for a while, but that wasn't necessarily anything to do with like expedition leading. I basically just found a town in a country that I really enjoyed and thought I could I could stay here for a bit you know I, I feel pretty happy but I don't know the relentless beauty strangely got quite boring like I know it sounds stupid to say but yeah, you stay anywhere long enough of course exactly yeah. that you know I just I felt a bit stagnant and I felt like I was ready to go and do something but I just didn't know what it was yet but I know that I knew that I wanted to travel and I knew that I wanted to be outdoors um I just had no idea what I wanted to do just yet, you know. So, besides from the like your your full time job, have you done any kind of long, kind of long term expeditions on your own or anything kind of similar that you'd see as kind of set you up for this challenge? Um, yeah, I'll be honest. I quite like going out on my own. Um, I do have a very small select group of friends. We're not all into the exact same things. Um, but there's something very character building about going out 
on your own because then you then you really see what you're made of when there's no one around to watch you or judge you 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 really see how far you'll go you know if we're talking just in terms of cycling um will i cycle harder faster and longer if i'm with a friend because i want to impress them or because i want to go at their pace or will i do it just for my own benefit you really really see what you're made of when when you're on your own and you know, it's uh, some. It's not for everyone. It's definitely not for everyone. I know, but um, when you're on your when you're on your own, that inner dialogue is amplified. I find when you're with somebody else, you're there's the distraction. There's the kind of you're able to have those explicit conversations. Whereas where when you're on your own, that's it. It's like you're stuck inside your head. You have yeah. to really work that out, out yourself. But obviously, I've done nothing no, anywhere near kind of the scale that you've done. But just from a cycling point of view, I can understand what you mean. Mm. Whereas being on your own, it's there's something, even though it's, it's cathartic, but there's something about being on your own that is, yeah, it's it's, it's definitely like a, well, it is, it's, it's, you're going into the unknown. It's you're doing things you haven't done before and having to experience it on your own for yourself. There's something far more kind of precious and, and kind of relevant to it mm. than when you're with somebody else. Because I don't know, maybe it's like shared responsibility. It's, yeah, no, I understand what you mean when, you, when you're saying you're going I feel like you'll also gain a lot more from the experience as well because even if you're just traveling, you are then forced to socialize. Mm. You can't spend every evening on your own traveling city to city, country to country and not engaging with anyone. If you're with a, a close friend, it's almost too easy, you know? Yeah. Oh, because you're just comfortable with one another. Yeah, exactly. You don't branch out as much as you should um, because it's, it's too easy. And I think... Uh, when you're on your own, you, you will get a better experience from it. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to tell people to bin off their friends and go yeah. and do this, that, and the other. I just I think it is very character building, and those are the that's that's kind of the bread and butter of the expeditions that I like to participate in. Not not lead, but participate in for sure. So, what's the kind of the longest you've been out on your own in like the wilderness, or, or kind of hilariously not very long. Right. Um, you know potentially no longer than than a week or 10 days right uh but again like i really wanted this expedition to jump off the page i haven't even cycled further than 123 kilometers i think is the furthest i've ever cycled in one day so what's that about 70 mile in old money yeah yeah about yeah but well you're saying because you're saying if you you've done about 10 days on your own surely from we call them checkpoints but at least from like place of decent civilization when you're coming through africa you're not going to be that far between 10 days two weeks between those places are you you're not going to be out on your own for for weeks on end no not that far i think the furthest that i'll probably have between civilization is probably uh wadi halfa to khartoum i really hope i'm saying them correctly uh, but that's that's in sudan and i'll be going through the sahara desert and that is more or less two weeks of absolute nothingness, you know. So what time, because I have no idea of, of the kind of the weather patterns or anything like that, or when summer is, when winter is, especially when you're in the desert, surely that doesn't apply, the normal rules don't apply. Not necessarily, what? no. It's going to be very, very hot and then very, very cold, regardless of when you go. So what time of year are you, are you doing this anyway? So, again, you know, there's only going to be such a mild difference in heat in the desert so mm. it's kind of irrespective of, of when i leave but i figured if i left towards the arse end of summer when i'm going towards the equator it will get cooler <laughs> so um you're saying through, that the, the the weather kind of won't change too much when you're in the desert but no. surely even just a few degree a few degrees either way could kind of make or break it well yeah of course a few degrees either way on in your internal core could literally kill you so yeah you know a, a few degrees here and there like they are something to be aware and i've always been very adamant about being aware of the risks that you take i like to engage in potential potential dangerous things but like i, I do need to know about my risks you know yeah yeah, exactly. So, because um, you haven't really given a time limit on it, but I think I, I saw you were looking at trying to do about 60k 
every day that you physically can do 100k it. 100k 100k every day that i'm physically able to cycle but there are also uh forgive me like maybe small excursions that i want to go and do basically i want to uh summit mount kenya which is about six days up and down unguided on my own so that's just, hiking so you yeah. leave your bike and you hike that i will find somewhere proper to store my bike yeah and load up a backpack with a week's worth of food unguided alone summit mount kenya um again all of this boils down to this desperation for for character building you know because i'm going to go potentially from some extremes where i'm going to be so so close to dehydration and mm. heat stroke and all of these extremes during heat and then summiting mount kenya with naught but a, a sweater and a, a maybe a jacket when it's going to be just above 5,000 meters probably be freezing you know I imagine yeah. it'll be extremely cold so <laughs> and, you th and you think that's doable well I think so yeah I, th otherwise. I think so yeah I've, I've done done a couple of high places and um I know that I'm terrible with the cold I'm quite good with the heat but I'm really 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 bad with the cold I've always always struggled you know is that something you could like fly out extra additional clothing ahead of time so you could pick yes. that up yes I am going to be meeting people in Kenya um, there's a videographer yet to be confirmed who uh, wants to come meet me in, in Kenya with maybe uh, the you know CEO whatever he wants to call it of uh, Power Day it's the, the, the oh the chairman's son basically he runs the company a guy called Edward who um, is also a big cyclist as well right and he is his company is my main sponsor and he wants to potentially fly out to kenya to do a bit of cycling as well um he's he's a great dude and he's absolute monster as i don't know if anybody if do you know him like yeah, no, no 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 yeah he's he's a good cyclist and he's going to come maybe with a guy called tom as well who's also an absolute machine and they're going to maybe do some cycling with me in kenya i'm not really sure this is all very undecided because the actual planning, although I've got it set in my head, is still very much in its infancy for what other people are going to contribute to it. You know? Sure. And hence you coming over tonight, because this was kind of to get you kind of up to speed a bit more on the cycling side exactly, of it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, get try my, and iron out any... little legs going, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, with a with a, um, a challenge like that, it's, it's not so much strength, it's just more, more mental fortitude. It's... it's mm. Like you don't necessarily have to be kind of that fast on a bike to be able to kind of um, to con like to complete something like that. It's, yeah, it's more just being able to have the grit and determination to keep on kind of keep the t mm. pedals turning. Um, which kind of knowing you and knowing your kind of previous feats and everything like that, I don't think you have so much of a problem with. So no, it's it's, it's very doable. You know, all I'm really doing is getting on a bicycle and just cycling every day. It's it's more the daily logistics that are actually. The tough part where am i going to sleep tonight am i safe have i got enough food like where is my next well or water spot you know am i going to be like crippled by bureaucracy in in egypt you know all of these things that are quite worrying whereas the actual cycling part any single one of us realistically could do mm. i truly truly believe that if you plonked somebody on a bicycle who was reasonably fit and had a determined mindset i think he could probably cycle 100k every day with you know brakes etc I, I think they do all right you know it's it's everything else that's the scary part yeah and that's when it becomes kind of mentally tough because it's just that it's just um it's almost like the house of cards it's like all these little bits of responsibility you need to carry like you were saying about kind of the bureaucracy of it and just making sure everything's planned and everything goes planned and also been having the kind of the mental toughness if things don't go to plan mm. not collapsing and being able to kind of work out kind of in kind of as most sensible kind of ways possible how to fix it yeah whereas yeah you, you will get somebody that may find that under the most kind of benign circumstances something happens and it, it the house of cars topples and they kind of they're, they're forced to uh to kind of abort but yeah that's that's when like i say the mental fortitude and kind of the, just the overall toughness comes into it yeah we've all had that feeling as well where something's gone wrong and you just that feeling where sounds like the volume's just been turned down and that just gut-wrenching feeling, you know. Every one of us have felt that and that's really when you know what you're made of. Yeah. When everything just goes completely wrong and you think, 
I have to now very much work out how to get out of this mess. Why is it that kind of, well, something like this in particular, that humans, well, certain particular humans, for instance, they have to fly so close to the sun that they have to kind of push the boundaries in such a way that they have to, well, kind of flirt with death in some sense to kind of feel any sort of validation to kind of, like, why do you think that some people have to do things like this? Or you or yourself, you have to do this? Um, it's a tough question, you know. There are some adventurers that give a slightly more belligerent answer where they say, if you if you have to ask why, then you will never understand. Um, I remember reading Lance Armstrong's book when I was young. Uh, it's not the bike or... Oh, it's all about a bike. It's all about the bike, that's yeah. the one. Um, and this was before he was uh, demonised and his big fall from grace. Hilariously, I wasn't even cycling then. Mm. I, you know, cycling is a fairly new thing for me. And he, I remember one one quote that he said, which was talking about fifty percent was uh, for glory, and then you know twenty percent was to prove other people wrong, twenty percent was to prove he was wrong, and then ten mm. percent was to push human endurance to, yeah. to, to new levels basically I, you know i've probably butchered that it was probably mm. completely wrong <laughs> quote but something that he said that I, I found quite amazing and that's that's always been my mentality going into things there is a huge percentage which is for selfish glory i understand that being an adventurer in its own right is quite a selfish mm. thing to do you know if you've got family and friends and people that love you then it's probably quite a selfish thing to do. I imagine my mum has aged horribly in the last 20 <laughs> years, you know. But um, there is also a massive element as well in, in proving other people wrong. Um, I've had a couple of people quite close to me who have shot the whole thing down saying that it would be foolish and reckless and that it's, it's I'm doing it for the wrong reasons and, all, or, you know... Mm. just what are the right reasons exactly exactly what are yeah. the right reasons you know i wrote a long list of reasons before i had sponsorship and before i had a charity to do this for i wrote a long list of reasons and one of the reasons quite close to the top of my list was what else am i going to do yeah <laughs> yeah and i guess just validation just through the process yeah yeah just kind of like you're saying, just proving yourself wrong. You have those doubts at the beginning of it. It's almost like the Jekyll and Hyde, like the uh, yeah, angel and devil. It's like yeah, one of you, one part of you thinks you're not going to be able to complete this. The other part's like, well, definitely, I'm a bit. It's like yeah, yeah. yeah, it's the start of the day. When I wake up, that's when I'm at my height of confidence, and I think I could easily do this. I'll enjoy it. What am I worried about? Yeah. And towards the end of the day, well, I'm feeling a bit more lackluster, and I think, yeah. what the fuck have I got myself into? I've started a runaway train that I now can't jump off of, you know, I'm fully committed to this now. But surely all challenges similar to this start in the same way. Like they start with an idea and that idea snowballs. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. It, it can't be born out of a, a board meeting. It's mm. like, yeah, one or two people's idea and then it kind of yeah, gets carried away. And then next thing you know, they've kind of completed it and the human race has kind of progressed that little bit further because of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I was talking to, to, my wife Vicky earlier about it because I was saying you, you're coming over and I was like oh, I just don't know I, I, I was like by all means like I will tell you everything you need to know that I've picked up along the way about cycling the bike and maintenance and all the rest of it and I'll kind of help as much as possible but obviously beyond that I have no idea what dangers lie ahead or kind of what's actually involved and I'm just like like obviously in huge admiration of it mm. but um, yeah like I, I just don't know I don't know. I, I just wouldn't. I personally, I don't think I'd be able to do it. So, which but then is the, which you, is the it, part that puts you off. So what part? Yeah, I think it's just the, the like the attrition of day on day of kind of riding, especially like when you're saying going, you're going through the desert. Because I like to ride my bike as short and as fast as possible. Like I like racing crit races, which are short format. They are rarely any longer than an hour. And it's kind of really intense and it's all over in that hour. Any longer rides more than three, four hours, my attention starts to kind of waver. And I guess it'd be a little bit different if I was in a different setting, like the middle of the desert or something like that. Um, but I think that just, a, yeah, the attrition of it, the day after day of like looking at the same thing over and over again, 
I think that would start playing on me and then it'd be the whole kind of the voice in your back head. It's like, you could just go home. Mm. And then, but like you said, it's, it's the angel and devil and then you, like, you have that kind of internal dialogue of it's like, now you're committed now. Like you're, you've come this far. Like don't, kind of don't bitch out now and kind of get this done. At least go to the next village and then have a word with yourself once you get to the village and go from there. But it's, um, yeah, maybe it's because being a father and all the rest of it and having work responsibilities and things, I guess it's a bit different because you've got your, your kind of exploration stuff. Mm. Um, maybe that puts me off and I think if personal situations are different, I don't, I don't know. But Yeah. it's. I mean, I've chosen like a very particular path in life. I've actively avoided looking or finding a girlfriend. I've uh, moved away from Watford. I live now in a tiny little village called Wimbish, which is south of Cambridge. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere, literally, you know, very rural. And all of these small little details have made me more career driven because now I know that I can't just go to the pub on a Wednesday evening with yeah. my friends or, um, have like a nice weekend away, like with my girlfriend that doesn't exist and all of these kind of things. And I know that they will come later and I'm not too worried, but right now I feel so focused on my career that I've had to subsidize and I've had to make sacrifices to go and do these things because we all get lonely and we all miss our family and our friends and all of these kind of things. And I've done back to back trips working where I've been away for three months then another three months with only a few days at home and i've missed uh you know the birth of my nephew and i've missed all of my close friends engagement parties and all of these small things you know where they don't seem big at the time but when you put them together as a collective and you think i've, I've missed a lot of home life a lot of home life uh, last year i had the first christmas here in in five years and mm. it was wonderful it was, it was amazing you know got pissed with my mum and ate everything and it, it was yeah. great you know but then i wonder where whether that then plays into it makes those those memories even more valuable because you've had that contrast because you've been kind of um away for other christmases that when you are here for those particular moments like, because for me for instance christmas is like i kind of joke about i oh, can we just do it every other year yeah. like a proper scrooge because i'm like oh fuck it's just like it's money it's like the just yeah. the arsing about feels very forced upon you yeah it's like <laughs> fuck can we just kind of carry on and forget about it whereas because you've been away for the five years previous, like that Christmas at home, it's like this feels even sweeter because you've had that kind yeah, of that, good that contrast. It was good fun. But then this is again set you up for this challenge because, like you said, you've had these these long times away from home and all these kind of small conscious decisions you've made of kind of staying single, sing, uh, single so you're able to kind of jump at, at kind of moments notice and things like that. It's, it's kind of set you up to to be in the best possible position for a challenge of this kind of magnitude, I guess. Yeah. I, I'm i not, you know, the easiest person to be around either because I, I have quite a high standard, you know. I'm, I'm pretty OCD and I demand a lot out of people. So I can imagine that would probably be quite difficult right now. Mm. I wouldn't, I don't know anyone on earth who would probably want to be with somebody that's away for nine months of the year anyway. Um, it's probably going to be quite a difficult relationship, but yeah, it's, it's just the way it goes. Like these are the, the sacrifices that you, you have to make. Yeah. Um, I'd hate to be doing what I am doing and potentially have a child or a girlfriend or anything along those lines. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine It'd be how a worry. tough it is for those yeah. people. Yeah. But it's that. And also being out in particularly dangerous like situations, you're going to have that playing in the back of your mind. It's like, I've got family at home. Yeah. And I think when that, that there may be particularly high pressure decisions need to be made. If you have that in the back of your mind that, yeah, I've got family at home and kind of, I've got responsibilities. That's then going to sway it. that massively. That's, that's really it. I mean, what, what have I got to miss? And just, you know, I have a shit day or I get a bit sick, mm. which is always going to happen. And I'm laying there and I think, you know, I miss my mum. Yeah. Like <laughs> That's, luckily for me that's that's as deep as it's going to go right now yeah. so that's such an enormous proportion of of the expedition you know pushed aside because i think realistically loneliness and homesickness is such a big factor that people don't account in before they yeah go into a trip yeah you know i've i've seen so many people on trips particularly young people 
who are having so much fun. That's the thing. It's, it's not like they're not enjoying the trip, mm. but it creeps in every now and then. One more, you know, one night you can't sleep or you've you've had a crap day, and and these things they can really, really take a hold of you. I've had a couple of people leave trips because of homesickness, and they always regret it. I guess you're so far out of your element in place of yeah. that as well. It's like you you can't help but crave some sort of comfort, and then that is kind of like the mm. the epitome of comfort is like being at home with your parents yeah. in some fun. Yeah, eating okay. takeaway food and yeah. watching Netflix and all these things that we bash, but they become like such a routine part of our life that we we do enjoy. even I enjoy it you know mm. uh, people talk about being an outdoorsman I love the outdoors but I also love sitting at home with my brother and playing playstation and stupid things like that yeah we everything in moderation yeah, yeah. But again you've got that contrast it's like it makes sitting at home with your brother even more valuable because you're like this far beats being in the jungle in pissing rain in the cold yeah and all the rest of it yeah I've had some miserable nights in the jungle uh just Something, uh, I can't even remember how many days it was, but just wet feet for so many days and my feet just started rotting to pieces. Your tre- was it trench foot? So what yeah, I mean, just... I imagine that, you know, in war times it would have been referred to as trench foot, yeah. but we, we call it foot rot. Right. Trench foot sounds probably a bit archaic, but yeah. um, we call it foot rot and your, your feet just go white as A4 paper and... Um, it's almost, it's quite difficult to describe. It looks a little bit like Freddy Krueger's face. That's almost the best way to describe it. Right. Um, considerably less colour and it just won't dry. You, you know, every time you take your boots off, that's just another layer of skin, skin being cheese grated off. Wet. Yeah, it's oh. really, really, really bad. And um, ironically, when it dries, it's more painful than when it's wet. So you almost crave it to be wet again. So there's flexibility and yeah. less pain. Grim. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's... So on a on a kind of different note, because all the things listeners don't know, but you're heavily tattooed. Yes. So tattoos kind of everywhere, everywhere. Is that going to cause any problems? Okay. This so gonna... this is one of the most asked questions, honestly. Right. Um. Yeah. For for anyone that doesn't know me, I was. A little trendy bugger when I was younger. I was a hairdresser in London. And take a photo and we'll put it there. We go. Yeah, we'll do that. And um, there you go. There we go. And uh, I was very much into sort of punk music and things like that, and, and decided it would be a good idea to get very tattooed, very very tattooed. It literally toes to the top of my head. Um, and then later in life realized that I wanted to go and do a job where I had to make business partners in different countries. I had to go and meet people face to face, charities, sponsors, um, young men and women who, when they first meet me, um, you know, they, they know that I've got to look after them. They Mm. know that I've got to organize everything for them. So there has to be a huge element of trust within the first 10, 20 seconds of, of meeting each other. Um, and, to date, it's never actually done that much bad for me. Uh, in some parts of my life, in some areas of my life, it's actually done better for me. Um, I have feared going to certain places. I definitely, definitely think the most judgmental place that I've ever been was probably North America, California. Um, really? That's yeah. so surprising. Do you think they're so... Especially no. California is so, well, from what I hear, so liberal and kind of yeah, laid yeah, back yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. I uh, I started in Texas and I headed west um, to get to California. And when I first arrived in Houston, I was quite nervous because I know it's very uh, well, Texas, conservative. Texas, yeah, Texas is quite... It's a conservative place. Yeah, it's and definitely people have got carry and conceal. And I thought... Yeah. You know, at the time I had like long blonde hair and, and I was like, I need to get to California. Those are my people. You know? <laughs> yeah. I need to get to Venice Beach. And um, everybody in Texas was was so lovely. I went to Galveston, a place that was quite badly affected by um, the hurricane, quite literally a few months after I'd left. Mm. And um, I don't think I paid for a thing. I don't think I paid for a thing in Texas. 
you know, they're like, are you British? And just straight away, like, free drinks, free food. I got invited to parties. A guy let me drive his Ford Ranger. All of these amazing things. Mm. Um, uh, it, it was great. I remember a guy as well, like, he, he told me, he said, where do you live in England? And, and I told him all about, like, our hunting laws and... You know, he couldn't understand it. I yeah. could literally could not gauge it. He said, "Listen, he goes. I tell you what. He goes. I know a guy. He goes. You give me a hundred dollars. He goes. I'll, I'll get you a handmade bow. Mm. And I didn't even return to England for another six months. Completely forgot about it and got home and had the most amazing oak longbow. Well, he sent it over. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. I don't even remember the guy's name. I don't remember his contact details. Anything. It was just one pissed up night in austin texas yeah and by the time i got to california the attitude was not the same everyone nobody wanted to be your friend nobody had time for you i remember leaning down to a woman's window to ask for directions and obviously put on like the best british, british accent, accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i beg your and, pardon um, she just completely ignored me she looked straight forward and just didn't acknowledge me and was that just how just sheer kind of ignorance or was it just um i think she was probably or quite she's scared. scared because yeah. of the tattoos and i think everything. so yeah. yeah i think she was quite scared and uh places i've been where i thought it really would be an issue places like guatemala and honduras and belize mm. um nothing i got no trouble at all right I, not, never ever has it affected my working life never has it affected my social life nobody's ever told me that Knowingly. Knowingly, of yeah, course. Of yeah. course, knowingly. Yeah. Like, as far as I'm aware, I've never not gotten a job or not sure. gotten to meet somebody because of the way I look. Yeah. And regarding our conversation earlier about, you know, the, the balance and imbalance of, of confidence, mm. um, when I wake up in the morning and I, I feel good and I feel ready and I feel like a confident guy, I think there's a gap in the market because there isn't a very known adventurer who's heavily tattooed yeah yeah and 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 i think david beckham uh, you know probably a, a poor analogy but david beckham very much paved the way for tattooed footballers it was never a thing before david no. beckham came along which just generally made it more acceptable oh he, he was, made it he was way like way more acceptable national treasure then all of a sudden he's covered in tattoos exactly and, yeah which sort of decriminalized tattoos in a way yeah. you know because before then it was just local art nuts who yeah. who had tattoos you know so well, then, then my old my old boss he um he interviewed oh, i can't remember who it was one of my friends covered in tattoos and he said after he goes i can't do it and i'm like why he goes got his tattoos i'm like why well, has that a problem mm. he's like oh some of the customers are going to be funny about it and i will like, leave them to be the judge of that but yeah i remember and this this was within the last five six years mm. so yeah but they are they are definitely becoming more and more acceptable but that's what that's why i was asking because in Africa, of course, they're not as necessarily as tolerant and as open no, as we not. are. I'm going to be going through a lot of Muslim countries, so out of nothing but respect, I will always be wearing quick dry uh, shirt and trousers, mm. which is what I normally wear on expeditions anyway. I normally wear boots, trousers, and shirt. Yeah, um, that's that's kind of my get up when I go away. Regardless, yeah, if I feel comfortable and safe, and I'm staying somewhere. Maybe a t-shirt and shorts for a couple of days while yeah. I uh, recover and rest. But realistically, I don't want to insult anyone, mm. especially without even knowing that I've insulted somebody. Yeah. So I think it's best to just make a concern. It almost seems laughable because of like my hands and my neck and to wear a shirt and t-shirt is not going to cover my tattoos. Yeah. But it may tip the scales to my favour... Yeah, if you show some exactly, signage, you yeah. try to respect their exactly their rules and and everywhere of... I go, I I always at least try to make the effort to learn pleasantries yeah in the local dialect because I've always thought that if you go straight over somebody with "Do you speak English?" There's just something a little bit it's very unfused. arrogant, isn't yeah, it? It's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. you should be talking my language, yeah. even though I'm in your country. Exactly, yeah. No, no, it's totally not the universal that. language of the world. So, or is it? I don't know. Maybe it is the universal language of the world. I'm not quite sure. Chinese is the most Mandarin 
is the most spoken the language. Most spoken language. I, I imagine that Spanish, English, and Mandarin are, are close competitors. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's much. I think sheerly because the volume of people in China. Exactly. Works and way. if um, movies has taught us anything, every alien speaks English. So yeah, there we go. yeah. But I think you're going to have more chance speaking English in in Africa than you are Mandarin. Yeah, I thought you okay. were going to say. <laughs> I was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, next expedition to the moon. Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, we might as well wrap up there because that was just kind of nice and quick and concise. Because yeah, you just rolled over just for some advice about the bike, and I thought exactly. might as well stick, I stick the mics on and for a coffee and a quick. Yeah, and I thought well, I might as well record it because it's a good opportunity. So, um, yeah, are there any kind of shout outs for your sponsors and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah. So, um, Ed at Power Day has just been monumentally supportive i went in and spoke to him and i was so scared that he was just gonna tell me to do one because i felt like i hadn't got all the right information and so i had to sell it there and then and he absolutely loved the idea was straight on the phone to all of these people that he knew a pr company called storm communications who uh are gonna help me you know, get get to where I want to be before I leave. And then uh, there's going to be an independent videographer who specialises in cycling as well, a guy called Andrew, and um, my charity, Bereaved Children UK. Um, I lost my father when I was 14 years old. And my school teachers basically said to everyone, they said, when Callum returns to school, be nice to him, but don't say anything because we find death pretty fucking taboo we, we don't really like talking about it at all um you know everybody we know has lost somebody whether it be a child a sibling a parent a grandparent you know we're all kind of getting to that age now where we've been affected by it but we don't like talking about it which is weird because we call ourselves the developed world but it's very very taboo to talk about it whereas places like nepal and India and other places I've been are, are very, very open about talking about it, which I found quite bewildering, but mm. also quite pleasant. All right, well, I won't cut it off just yet then. Um, in the places that you've found have been more open about it, um, only because I was listening to another podcast earlier, they were talking about psychedelics and kind of the, the, the role oh, yeah, of psychedelics yeah. play. Yeah, well, you and me could do a whole other podcast. Yeah, <laughs> um, in talking about becoming comfortable with the idea of death and the afterlife and that there is something on yes later. what's this graham hancock by any chance yeah yeah of course yeah. so um so in the in like nepal and these other kind of um eastern countries is there more of a tradition of using um psychedelics at all like rituals like you've got ayahuasca and stuff like that so maybe just um, generally yeah when when <clears throat> when i was going down um the americas that was much much more accepted not north I, I mean central america is t still technically north america um if you want to be pedantic but you know yeah down down that sort of route as, as as i was heading down south through the americas that was uh very prevalent i don't think that was a huge deal when i when i was in asia but they have um if anybody's ever been to Kathmandu, they will probably know about the ceremony that they hold quite close to the city um where they have this river that runs through very shallow it's it's only about two feet deep uh by about f 10 feet wide and um there are steps leading up either side that go down to the river and on one side they have uh just a flat um surface where they have more candles than you could ever conceive of and that's where all the family and friends and acquaintances stand. And then on the other side, they have um, concrete funeral pyres. So it's like a concrete beds staggered about um, 15 metres apart. And on top of that, they build uh, like a, a wood lattice pyre. And they bring bodies out as clear as day, dressed up nicely, and they put them on the pyres and then they they simply burn them and then they push all of the ash into the river and people go down and pay their respect and, and maybe sort of get a, a fingertip of water and do a mark on their forehead, something along these lines. Mm. And I went down and a very nice family, 
a brother and sister who had lost their uncle let me stand with them and watch and they talked me through the whole ceremony and then at the end they they made me eat some rock salt which was symbolic in some way that I probably can't remember and they were really really okay with it they they spoke about how death was a celebration of life and I don't know I, I can't picture seeing somebody that I love or even know after they had died mm. like open casket and things like this this is becoming more and more uncommon mm. I mean we don't even bury our dead anymore we just get cremated yeah um we we sort of avoid death more and more and more you know yeah there's squeamishness almost. really yeah. really really squeamish yeah. yeah it you know terrifies us we we don't particularly like talking about it and we mm. definitely don't like seeing our loved ones burnt in front of us no but in the face of that you're saying that the kind of family's relatives were all at peace with the idea, mostly at peace. So with the idea at peace. Of... So at peace. When I first saw it, my incredibly Western judgmental brain like, said, "That's buddies. fucking barbaric. Yeah. What are you doing? Like, there's children here." Yeah. And then, the more that they explained it and elaborated, the more I thought, "This is it's quite sweet in a way." The fact that they cared that much, mm. and that they don't see it as the end, so to speak. I mean, maybe like the growing connection between atheism and, and not wanting to see our dead yeah. is, is yeah. maybe tangible with each other. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd agree with that. And it seems to be the way that as, especially with the kind of the exposure we have to the internet and just information in general, it seems that kind of a lot of religious, uh, how can we do this? Like a lot of religious teachings are kind of getting debunked so that like there is no omnipotent kind of being in the sky that's kind of the puppeteer that's kind of directing yeah. it all and it's a lot of people are going well religion's bollocks so i'll believe in in what science tells me so yeah when you're dead it's just darkness um so then you could say that in kind of countries that are far more religious that is less so and they are allowed to believe that there is an afterlife and kind of this is kind of um mysterious place we go to afterwards um but kind of going back to the, the psychedelic side of it, because that's what they're saying is that when people are doing these experiences, they are seeing behind the curtain. They're seeing that there is possibly more to it than what we're allowed to believe in this realm we we, mm. we live in. And that, because there's a study that came out recently, wasn't there, where they, um, it was in the UK, I think it may have been one of the first studies in, because it was psilocybin, um, which is the active ingredient found in, in magic mushrooms. Mm. And it was in the UK and it was um, a group of people who were terminally ill. And so they were, of course, you had like a placebo, placebo uh, group and then you had another group which then were given three increasingly large doses of psilocybin. So the first one being, I guess, a mild trip, ending up to what the third one is seen as a, a heroic dose, which is like... Your journey. Fucking, yeah, so you are fucking gone. <laughs> I think that's... Uh, 0.5 grams and above is, is the hero's journey. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I, I, I haven't done any myself. And I, was only, I was talking to Vicky earlier. I was like, the more I listen to it, the more I'm kind of coming around to the idea of doing it, but I, not until he's older. Yeah. It's just like something got in my head, not until my son's older, yeah, yeah, just yeah. in case the wheels come off. <laughs> um, so, but the they they conducted this study and what they found was 80%. So the whole idea was a study where they've got these people who were terminally ill and they were anxious of death. Mm. Understandably so. Is coming whether we like it or not, but of course they they were kind of facing it down down a barrel. Mm. That they found eighty percent of the people who went through this study um, and had these three doses and had their guided almost clinical trips with with um, kind of not necessarily shamans but just guides. Mm. That they found that yeah, eighty percent of people were kind of um, content with the idea of death and the afterlife because they feel that they have seen beyond that the end of this life yeah. is not necessarily the end of their journey that it carries on and so they were they were happy with the idea that they were going to they were going to die and they kind of offered as much as they could in this life and they had something to look forward to yeah i mean if 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 you're if you're laying there with the reaper hanging over your shoulder and somebody said you could pitch it two ways you could say listen do you want to lift the veil and and look what's mm. underneath in in the nether realm yeah or if somebody said, do you want to have a bit of fucking fun just before the end? Yeah. I mean, either way you pitch that, I'm probably going to say, yeah. Yeah. You know, 
these these people what have I got to lose yeah exactly that I can't even imagine what that would feel like give being given a death sentence mm. we all want to die very quickly painlessly and without even knowing yeah that's 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 the idea isn't it but then I was saying going to these these other kind of civilizations where um there's more kind of religious and there's more ritual ritualization mm. that takes place that these teachings of an afterlife are kind of uh, handed down whereas in western society it's like no purely scientific yeah like when you die your brain ceases like all the electroactivity stops like you you're no longer making kind of ideas and connections and all the rest of it it's lights out you feel the same afterwards as you did before you were born it's just yeah. darkness um but yeah, it's really interesting, especially because it was um, one of the, uh, the Joe Rogan podcasts recently. Is yeah, it was Graham Hancock and some other guy. I'm still I haven't finished it yet. But yeah, it was fascinating to hear them talk about it because then they go back to kind of Greek um, kind of classical studies and mm-hmm. the links of kind of how they were using psychedelics and the rest of it back then, and how kind of it echoes through the teachings through millennia, well, through thousands of years. And it's it, it was interesting. So yeah, but it, like you're saying, it is taboo. Um, in Western society, especially, but when you go to these other other countries, seem to be more founded in religion, um, kind of you know, far more foundations in, in religion that death isn't as taboo. Yeah, I mean, isn't psychedelics just as taboo in the Western world? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's all right to get get shit faced and act like an utter cretin every weekend, ruin your kidney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, your liver apparently somebody that does psychedelics every now and then is, is a tearaway. I've actually done psychedelics to party and also um, did ayahuasca in the heart of a jungle with... with so you've done a proper... Yeah, yeah. I, I did it proper and, and broke through to the other side to say the very least. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, turned into Mowgli and, and, and thought, I'm just going to start a new life in the jungle. And it started raining and I just sort of took all my clothes off and howled at the rain for, for a while and... It was utter joy. And, and do you feel that was like a pivotal moment? That... A little bit, yeah. So I actually did it because I didn't want to be a stick in the mud. I was with a couple of people. Yeah. And I knew that to leave and go back on my own would be more effort than if I just stayed and, and did the drugs. Yeah. Um, I was quite nervous at first because I thought, I'm very far away from any aid. Mm. And if this goes wrong... It's only me and my brain, and, and that's yeah. it. So I was really nervous at first before doing it, uh, but it was it was gradual. I think, you know, from when I used to go to festivals and things like that, it was the the fear kind of takes you when when you go from zero to a hundred in too short of a period. If it's gradual, you can come to terms with it, and it was very very gradual. Yeah. It, t- it took me from uh, when I first took it to to about two hours before I really started feeling. Yeah anything so because there was such a good time period to to sort of come up so to speak it it, it was okay but i have also um like partied as well like with mushrooms and and things like that i've took a load of mushrooms at halloween party when i was dressed as marilyn monroe apologies for anyone who's at that party because i was probably (laughs) very fucking weird um with a couple of other friends of mine who shall remain anonymous yeah and we had a fucking great time like it was really 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 good um so I've I've done a couple of mm. a couple of cool things with, with psychedelics. Psychedelics were were used almost daily. We go back thousands of years, kind of back even before like the BC and things like that. And then, from my understanding, it was psychedelics was the main kind of source of kind of enlightenment and fun. Mm. And then um, things were then preserved in alcohol. I believe. And mm. so then alcohol started becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and so then people were drinking more. And then you found the psychedelics then got kind of pushed to the wayside and alcohol because of how easy it was to produce was then um, kind of became flavor of the month. And then that was it. Then you found that alcohol then kind of took mm. president and up until kind of current day where, yeah, you, uh, everybody's going down the pub every night. Yeah, we until... built a civilization around it. You know? Yeah. And uh, and psychedelics have been kind of chastised, yeah. And I think it's it sounds like now people are starting to kind of pioneer back into psychedelics, especially when it comes to like PTSD treatment and stuff like that. It's now starting to lose its um, 
yeah, lose its stigma. I wholeheartedly agree. I'm actually a diehard mushroom fan anyway. I fucking yeah. love mushrooms. Um, I find them strangely interesting in a way. One of the supplements that I take every single day is uh, a mushroom complex, which is cordyceps, chaga, and lion's mane. Mm. I like the, the mushroom coffee. I like eating mushrooms. I just find them all around quite cool. Like I love foraging. That's mm. a huge, huge part of my expeditions, like a bit of fun. Go to these places and, and see what you can find. And it's cook. like Pokemon Go for hippies. Literally, yeah. exactly, exactly yeah. what it is. <laughs> That's a very, very good yeah. analogy. Yeah, it is. And it's just, you know, when, when you're talking about uh, Joe Rogan podcast, I remember listening to that uh, Paul Stamets. Yes. Yeah. And that guy blew me away. Turned up with a mushroom hat. I thought I've, he's immediately got my attention <laughs> and then came out with all this amazing stuff about like, trees communicating with each other like yeah. because the, the mycelium mass like 30 percent of soil is mycelium mass and if one tree is potentially um under uh, under threat from like a parasitic tree like a strangler fig it can like connect with with another tree and i i, I you know if we're going down the route of psychedelics and, mm. and being all lovey-dovey like what does that tell you that yeah but then again on the flip side of the coin so many mushrooms are not fatal, but very, very toxic. Yeah. So it seems quite interesting that something that would be so prevalent in our... Well, history. Yeah, our history. Yeah, yeah. If You know, psychedelic ape theory and, and all, of, yeah. all of that. <laughs> I'm not saying that I believe in that, but I'm saying that... Well, even like I said, from, the, from ancient Greece. Like yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were using psychedelics and mushrooms. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, like going from something from in history so far back... Yeah, something that's so kind of so prevalent, but also like so not, not necessarily so deadly, but so mm. kind of bad for you. People will always find a way to get fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Whereas um, I had Andy Ware on, on one of the podcasts. He's my mate, and he's um, he's a clinical psychologist, and he's um, and like he said it's he's more concerned about the, the people that don't do things to break out. There we and go. Yeah. Even if it's something as simple as caffeine, just something to try and kick the monotony of kind of of the kind of the, the, of everyday life exactly so they're the ones that kind of yeah they kind of make him think it's like how are you keeping it together yeah like the, yeah we're all looking for our escapism yeah. and that's probably like deep down the heart of all of these grueling arduous expeditions that i want to undertake myself it's just escapism you know that's that's all it is at the end of the day because when i was younger i grew up on action heroes like kurt russell and bruce willis and all of these people that I loved that were sort of knee-deep in adventure. As funny as it sounds, like, two of my biggest influence in life, Indiana Jones, Tintin. They went dangerous places, they went on adventures. Yeah. And that, to me, was not fiction in, in a way. Like, to me, that was serious. Like, I wanted to go and do that. I'm not talking about, you know, womanizing in the jungle in South America, but, like, the the... the the snippets of archaeology and discovery and exploration, those things spoke to me so much. And I think at the end of the day, like that's all it boils down to is, is the connection with escapism. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so besides that tangent, um, you were doing some shout outs. Was there anybody else you left out? That's, um, that's probably it. Apart from my family and friends who, as always, are just being super supportive power day, um, being very, very supportive as well. Child Bereavement UK, um, for obvious reasons, like we just went into, mm. and uh, Storm Communications, my PR company, thanks for giving a toss. Yeah. And uh, Andrew, if you ever listen to this, I don't know if you will, but please, 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 please work for me because your videography is fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what we'll do is, yeah, we'll, we'll park that there then. Um, I think what we might do is, is we may do another one um, closer to, to the time mm. once you've kind of got a bit more organized and then we yeah. can kind of talk through maybe the logistics of it and go into other things in a bit more detail because this was a bit um kind of spontaneous yeah and then we'll definitely do one once you come back because yeah. i'm sure there's people who listen to this who'd love to hear about your, your adventures and mm. they're, they're going to keep uh keep um on, on track so <clears throat> online all your updates and everything is it mostly through instagram or yeah so things are about to basically uh how do I put this? Things Ramp things are up. about to yeah, basically about to glow up. Like, um, I've got a couple of meetings this week, and then that's realistically the starting point of the beginning. You know, my fundraising page will begin. 
Um, I will have contracts, deliverables, all of that boring stuff out of the way and then I can just get cracking. I've been in limbo now for about two weeks and I don't like it. I just really, really want to get going, raise money, train and do my thing. Cool. Right, so if anybody wants to follow you on social media, what are your contacts? My Instagram is C-A-L underscore S-J and everything will be updated from there. Cool. cool. All right then. Cheers, mate. Well, well good luck, mate. Cheers, I'll talk to you later. The Shack Sessions Podcast.